Today on Against the Grain, the experience of awe, a sense of vast, mysterious wonderment, may feel beyond classification or definition. But recently, awe as an emotion has been deeply probed, and the results are fascinating. Scientist Dr. Keltner, who has pioneered the study of awe, argues that awe allows us to make connections that break down our sense of isolation and can lead to more cooperative ways of seeing and being in the world. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Sporting events, punk rock shows, gazing at panoramic views or witnessing the kindness of others, all of these can imbue us with a sense of wonderment that is best described as awe. Yet curiously, until just 20 years ago, while scientists studied other emotions, there was no scientific study of awe. That changed with the research done by Dacher Keltner and colleagues at UC Berkeley, spawning a new field and a great deal of emerging insight. How do we define awe? How does it differ from other strong emotions like beauty? What effect does it have on our bodies when we experience awe? How might it be used and abused politically? These are all questions that Keltner grapples with in his latest book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Keltner, who teaches psychology at UC Berkeley and is the director of the Greater Good Science Center there, is the author of various books, including Born to be Good, the Science of a Meaningful Life, and The Power Paradox. I had the opportunity of speaking with him recently, and I started by asking him to define the term awe. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the hardest questions uh, in the study of emotion, in, in fact, and something that uh, a lot of great thinkers from the indigenous traditions on have grappled with, which is what is the, this transcendent emotion we call awe today. Um, from our perspective of 21st century science, I define awe, you know, borrowing on a lot of scholarship as the emotion that we feel when we encounter vast mysteries that we don't understand. Um, so it's a brief state in response to the mysterious. Can we feel awe from something that is vast, but not necessarily mysterious? For example, I was thinking back to the feeling that I had 20 years ago when the U.S. was about to invade Iraq and millions of people took to the streets in protest. And I remember coming out of the BART station in San Francisco and being what I would describe as awestruck by the enormous sea of people protesting as far as the eye can see. But I don't know if I would have termed that mysterious. It was just just vast. Yeah, yeah, no, terrific question, Sasha. I think I was at that protest too. <laughs> May have been marching right side by side with you. Yeah, you know, so there are a lot of vast things. And, and you know, very often people in our research feel awe at political protests and musical events and large-scale dances and sporting events. And, and there is this sort of sense of vast humanity. And I would say that it starts to um, tilt towards an experience of awe when it, that vast gathering of humanity transcends your understanding of the moment, right? How could people gather in such a spontaneous fashion around one kind of moral principle or one assessment of politics? And when it heads into the mystery uh, or the, the surprise or novelty um, or defies explanation, then it becomes awe. But otherwise, it's just a, a sense of astonishment, right? Wow, this is so vast, I can't believe it, but lacking in mystery. And every event like that can produce awe, if it doesn't have the mystery, produces related states like astonishment or, or being amazed. Well, then, sort of following on that, how would you say that awe differs from our appreciation of beauty, which obviously could make us feel you know, transcended in some way? Yeah, that, boy, you're starting off with the easy questions. <laughs> Thanks, Sasha. Um, yeah, you know, that question, you know, the difference between what in the 17th or 18th and 19th century people more routinely called the sublime, which is that which produces awe versus beauty, that question occupied 
some of the great minds, uh, you know, Immanuel Kant, uh, Edmund Burke, who really influenced my thinking on awe. And, and I think that, you know, beauty isn't as powerful as awe. It isn't as overwhelming as awe. So out in nature, we will feel awe when we see a lightning storm or, you know, hear the, the thunder that we, has actually been happening here in the Bay Area recently, see a really vast, imposing mountain. And then beauty is, is not as imposing or powerful. It's rolling hills and, you know, fields of flowers and the like. And then beauty um, doesn't have kind of the, the sense of mystery to it to the extent that um, awe does. When we have a, a response of beauty to a painting, a landscape, a human face, a certain kind of music, um, that we'll, we'll understand right away, oh, that's pleasing. It has these, as, you know, aestheticians or philosophers wrote about from the Greek times on, certain principles of similar, you know, of harmony and uh, organization and the like. So um, beauty has a kind of a different emotional feel. It feels more affectionate. Awe uh, feels more um, imposing and, and mysterious. You argue that awe can play an important role in helping us through the uncertainty, the hardship, and the loss that is part of life. Can you tell us how so? Yeah, you know, um, I, like a lot of, um, you know, Western Europeans, frankly, uh, love certainty. I love fixed ideas. I love a sort of a stable understanding of the world. Uh, and that's just a property of the human, many human minds. Um, and, and I probably shied away from mystery and, and uncertainty. And then um, one of the reasons that I wrote this book, Awe, was uh, in the grief of losing my brother, Rolf, um, who's my younger brother. And his passing uh, was profoundly destabilizing personally. I just didn't know what to think of the world. I didn't know what to think about life and death. Uh, I didn't know what to think about what my life meant um, after he was gone. He and I had shared so much in life and in shared so much in awe. Um, and so, you know, Sasha, I, I was in this profound state of uncertainty, which is really the beginnings of awe in many ways, where we don't understand um, what has produced this emotion. And in that grief, I went in search of awe. And I did, you know, I went on walks, went to the mountains listen to music, went to, you know, uh, talk to ministers, just talk to activists, indigenous scholars like Dr. Yuria Salidwin. And out of that uncertainty and out of the experiences of awe that it led me to, I, I gained a richer understanding of life uh, through grief. And the science really lines up with that broader experience, that brief experiences of awe help us find patterns in life. They help us see the deeper meaning by which we feel uncertain. They animate the growth of knowledge, self-knowledge, right? Um, so true, for example, when a child develops. So one of the challenges, I think, for our times is to turn to awe to, ha to really animate um, our understanding of what is uncertain about the world. And the science really tells us it is a great pathway to you know, to grow out of uncertainty and even trauma. Well, then staying with the science for a moment, what do we know about what happens in the body when we experience awe and, and how lasting is that effect? It's so striking. And in, in writing awe, uh, this book, I, I asked that same question. And, and, I, and I was in search of uh, what Walt Whitman, I think, very nicely posed in his question. He said, you know, if the soul is not in the body, what is the soul? And I think what he was saying with that quote is, you know, our experiences of awe and the sublime and the soul, they just move our bodies. And, and as I read the different kinds of scholarly traditions to understand that question, you know, you read about uh, people shuddering when they encounter God. You hear about the kundalini energy in the body of yoga. You hear about tears of, you know, people... Uh, crying when they, they encounter things that are sacred or close to awe. Uh, and so I surveyed the scientific literature and contributed to it. And it's a remarkable transformation of the body, which is if we just start from the cortex or your brain, 
Um, awe reduces activation in the default mode network, big chunks of your cortex, which are really part of the ego. It, de it reduces activation in the amygdala, a threat-related region of the brain, so it gives you this sense of transcending stress. Those tears we often feel when awe-inspired by music, for example, are certain kinds of tears that are produced by the parasympathetic autonomic nervous system that um, are really activated when we recognize what really matters to us, what matters to our people. Tear, um, the chills, there's a certain kind of chills that non-human primates, Jane Goodall observed, have when they feel awe, so do we. And they are really part of merging with others. Our, the boundary between self and other dissolves and we start to connect with others. And then finally, you know, our lab has shown that awe activates the vagus nerve, very important to the health of your heart, and reduces inflammation in the body, which is the immune system heating up the body to attack pathogens. And it's, it's really bad news to have chronic inflammation. Awe cools down the inflammation system. So, you know, I'm sorry to go on for so long, but, you know, when Walt Whitman said, you know, wow, our feeling of what is really primary about our lives, the soul, uh, is in the body. He was right, right? Awe, so close to our sense of the soul, if you will, has all these remarkable bodily registers that will only become more precise as, we, as the science matures. And yet it seems like the experience of awe tends to be not an extended thing, but something that we can feel in a moment. So how does that momentary experience of awe have, or does it, have a lasting effects on the processes you've been describing in the body? Yeah, you know, that, I, I mean, you know, that's hard science to do, right? I mean, you know, so I have a brief experience of awe. Um, I, I go to that, you know, a political rally, or I'm, I'm out in the redwoods, or I'm astonished by the kindness of young kids, or whatever the case may be. It's listen to a piece of music. How long does it last? Um, this is actually a really important question in the psychedelic literature, which is, has relations to awe because uh, people believe that these experiences or a spiritual experience last a long time. And, and we don't know, you know, we did a study with uh, students from under-resourced high schools and also veterans. They went rafting for half a day on the American River. This was in partnership with Stacy Bear and the Sierra Club. Uh, we wanted to have them enjoy the power of awe. And what we found is that half a day of rafting led to a week of benefits. Our teenagers felt closer to their families, happier. Our veterans, a 32% drop in PTSD. So that's a week of benefits. There's recent work coming out uh, in the study of festivals where we feel a lot of awe, music festivals, dance festivals, Renaissance fairs. And these researchers found uh, a year of benefits in terms of altruism for the festival experience and psychedelics, I'll have to note. So awe within that context, indirectly probably, led to a year of benefits. Does it change our nervous systems even longer uh, for a lifetime as some people feel? We don't know. And I think time will tell and, and it's one of the great questions uh, about this mysterious emotion. I should say I'm speaking with Dr. Keltner, professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. We're discussing his book, All the New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, I wonder how you think we should understand how awe affects us. And in recent years, pleasure and the, you know, the hits of dopamine to our system when we experience a rush of pleasure have been much maligned as addictive and short-lived. Where does awe fit in with the notions of, you know, the limitations of pleasure, or does it not? Yeah, well, I think, it, I think it's uh, in a different space, if you will, or realm of experience than pleasure. You know, the sensory pleasures of eating and lying on a hammock, you know, and on, a, on a vacation and feeling the sun on your skin, and those are good, but awe, I, believe is really the, in the realm of uh, the imagination where we're actually making sense of what lies beyond reality or our understanding of reality. It does activate, some studies suggest, for example, in visual art, the dopaminergic system. So that's probably involved. It probably also engages 
oxytocin, kind of a social engagement uh, neuropeptide. But importantly, with respect to our experience, um, awe is about meaning and purpose as opposed to immediate sensory pleasure. It is this emotion that arises when you feel like, wow, this is what my life should be about. One of the great places in which that arises is, is one of the sources of awe I write about, which is music. And very often people will be drawn to music because it expresses what they care about and find most meaningful in life. And it brings them tears. They feel awe. So awe is really different from other forms of pleasures, like sensory pleasures, social pleasures, right? Like being appreciated. Awe is about meaning. And, you know, Sasha, like, you know, I teach young people today and, and they are... We are in this moment of, uh, as you suggested, of moving away from hedonistic pleasures, so popular since Ronald Reagan and Wall Street, et cetera, to, you know, what are the, the delights of meaning, uh, of finding our purpose in life? And awe is a compass to those. It points us to them. Does awe usually have to be a novel experience? And is there a danger of diminishing returns from something that we initially find awe-inspiring, but with multiple encounters, it becomes more ordinary? Yeah, you know, <laughs> what a terrific question, you know. That was one of my big worries, too, is that, you know, um, if we go after awe and we do all this science and we now have ways that you can cultivate awe, dude, does it actually ruin the experience or diminish it? You know, we know in the study of pleasure, it's called the, the law of hedonic adaptation, that we tend to adapt to pleasure. We, we love, you know, our new watch. The first time we see it, it seems extraordinarily beautiful. And by the 10th time we see it, we're like, it's a watch, you know, after all. Um, and, and it's interesting, research suggests that awe doesn't follow this law of hedonic adaptation that's true of pleasure. In a relevant study, we had um, people 75 years old or older take what we call an awe walk each week, once a week. You know, you go out, you look for mysterious things, you look at small things and big things and approach your walk with the, the curiosity of a child. And not only did it benefit our elderly participants in terms of their physical pain, reducing it, but what we found, and this surprised me, is the each week they did the walk, they were knowing they were going to do the walk, they felt more awe and more positive emotion. So what that tells us is, and I think, you know, mystery, as you cited earlier, Sasha, is this key ingredient of awe. And one of the magical qualities of our experiences of awe is they are always mysterious. They always animate our search for more of the emotion. So actually awe, I think, rises with a, a focused approach to it and, and increases in its meaning. You're right that, that awe costs us nothing, that we don't have to spend any money on awe. But obviously we do live in a highly unequal society where some of us live in places that are you know, more monotonous than others. And so I wanted to ask you, can we all find awe as easily as each other? Is awe in fact evenly distributed? Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, um, and what a terrific question, and what a terrific question fitting for KPFA, right? Which is, is this just a, an emotion for the privileged? Um, and, you know, God knows across human history, the privileged, the well-to-do, the 1% have, you know, have tended to commodify things, own rare experiences, take sacred objects from other cultures, etc., uh, have the resources to hop on a plane and go to the Australian Barrier Reef, etc. And I was really worried about that too, because I have a long history of studying inequality and social class. Um, and I was worried about that. Wow, here's this incredible emotion that helps our, as we talked about, our immune system, our heart, our reasoning. But maybe it's really just there for the well-to-do. And there are two findings that really shape how I wrote about this emotion. Um, one is by Jake Moskowitz and Paul Piff, really nice representative research uh, uh, sample that really characterizes the United States. And what they find is the, the poorer you are, the more awe you feel on a regular basis. So paradoxically, wealth and resources and privilege may get in the way of awe, right? 
It was the poorer people in our sample, the less lower of lower socioeconomic status, who felt more awe on a regular basis. That's encouraging to me. You don't need money. Second thing is um, we've done a lot of work in different countries, from Spain to China. You know, we ask people to report on their experiences each day, um, carefully look at what they report on. Uh, and what we find is people, everyday people, feel awe two to three times a week. So they're just finding it around them. You know, they just, they find it in the sunset or the pattern of rain or the, the laughter of children or a piece of music a friend is playing. Just everyday awe. And so those two findings, I think, say something really unexpected about awe, which is um, it's there for everybody. And it may be in its strongest form when it's not commodified and monetized. So I, I find that really encouraging. How do you deal with the potential for people to sort of overreport their awe? I'm thinking how we live in, a, particularly in the United States, and maybe especially in California, a, a really superlative culture. And so when people report they have encountered awe, is it the same awe that you're defining, you know, in your scientific studies? Yeah, you know, thank you for asking that question, Sasha. It's a really deep question. Do the, does the language that we use really capture the feelings of an emotion like awe, the subjective quality of it, or phenomenology? Um, Edmund Burke, who is the Irish philosopher who really influenced my thinking, uh, wrote about awe when he was 27 years old and said, got to the vast mystery definition we began with. He observed that, you know, um, words often don't capture the deep structures of our feeling. William James, the great American philosopher, before he wrote his, his uh, Varieties of Religious Experience, very important book that I write about, was influenced by a mystical experience he had, funnily enough, when he took laughing gas. And uh, he, he fell to the ground and he had this, he felt like he was in touch with, with the fundamental cosmic it, he called it, or spirit. And, and he said, but tattered words are tattered fragments. They can't capture the experience. I agree with those guys. I feel like words often don't really capture the deeper images and associations and colors and, uh, you know, and abstract thought that, that is part of an emotional experience. And so our work relies on a lot of different measures of awe, right? We have people draw images of themselves. Awe makes them smaller. We have them draw images of their social network. Awe increases your sense of social connectivity. We study the vagus nerve and tears and chills, right? We have people draw images on their bodies of where they felt awe. Um, we rely on the vocalization of awe, which is like, whoa. And if you use these different non- linguistic measures, it tells a, a very comparable story about how often we feel awe, how powerful it is, its benefits. So I hope if there are young scientists out in the audience, they, they should be hearing your question, Sasha, which is look beyond words to understand feeling. Why do you think that we evolved to feel awe given all of the benefits that you've described that all can give us on so many different levels? I approach emotions and our subjective life from an evolutionary perspective, you know, that has heroes in, in thought like Jane Goodall and Franz Duvall and Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy and Charles Darwin and others. You know, it's interesting, I'll note Jane Goodall, when she observed chimpanzees, this is one of my favorite quotes, of awe, you know, they tend to fluff up their fur and show goosebumps when they are observing waterfalls and big winds and storms. And she said, this is really the beginnings of awe in primates and maybe even the beginnings of spirituality. And she really, like others have said, that those chills or piloerection or fluffing up of the fur, they do when they join with other fellow primates to face peril, like, like awe, in the case of awe. I think awe does two things for us evolutionarily. And the first is it connects us to groups, right? We are a hyper-social species. Our unique strengths are social. 
we met the threats to our survival, like food scarcity, raising offspring which, who were very vulnerable, fending off the cold, fending off predators collectively. So we need different, quote, adaptations to help us be part of collectives. Awe does that instantaneously. Studies find in our lab, when you feel awe, you feel like you're part of a group. You conceptualize the self as collective. You, the boundaries between you and others dissolve. You share and help others really quickly. Awe makes us strong members of collectives. And then the other point is really more subtle, is what awe does to the mind. And I think that awe helps us understand the systems around us, right, that are beneficial for our adaptation. One example, there's pretty good data showing awe makes you see the ecosystems around you more clearly and see your place in those ecosystems more clearly. And that, of course, is beneficial to being a, a reverential steward, if you will, or, or participant in uh, nature. So awe connects us to others in collectives, and then it helps us see the, the systems of life, of communities and social groups and ecosystems and the like, weather systems, just to understand the world in a more sophisticated way. Dr. Keltner is my guest. We're talking about his book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. That's published by Penguin. His other books include Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life, and he's professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, where he's faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center. And I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, let's turn now then to where awe can be found. I wonder if you could talk about finding awe in others, in other people. How do we find awe in their actions? Yeah, it, it's been so uh, eye-opening and mind-opening to do this science of awe. And uh, so, you know, if awe is our emotion we feel when we encounter vast mysteries, well, what is the emotion in response to? What's it about, you know? And um, to answer that question, we actually, um, you know, I remember sitting around in our lab and Yang Bai and Maria Monroy, two young scholars, were like, let's just gather awe stories from 26 countries. You know, I was like, wow. You know, so that's what we did. And we, you know, and, and these are every imaginable country, not only the weird Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. Um, they were, you know, they, it was India and China and Japan and, and Brazil and Russia and Mexico and, you know, um, the U.S. and England and et cetera. Really a diverse array of, of cultures. So the individuals wrote their stories and they wrote, you know, what was the last time or time when they felt awe. And then we gathered 20 uh, speakers of 20 languages. We translated the stories, took a long time, and then we classified them. And the, and I call these, the, how we classified them leads to what I call the eight wonders of life that give us awe, where we find it. And the most common one is, is what I've called moral beauty. Um, other people, most typically ordinary people's kindness, their courage, their ability to overcome obstacles, um, their, their, their modesty, their humility, it just it blows us away. And we tear up and we get the goosebumps and we feel awe. You know, I remember stories of um, a mom from Ireland writing about her daughter who had club, born with club feet. And there was the mom when the daughter was, you know, um, 12, I think, watching her dance ballet or dancing a performance. She just was overwhelmed with awe. I remember an amazing story from, uh, about, of courage of a son goes into his dad's bar in Pittsburgh. Uh, the dad's a bartender. And the son shows up with an African-American friend. It's 1973. And a patron in the bar turns to the dad, the bartender, and says, how could you let your son hang around with the N-word, right? And the dad throws this guy out of the bar and says, you know, get out of here. You can't come back. And the son was overwhelmed with awe. So awe, and it's so striking. What an what a interesting commentary on the human mind that we find this most sublime emotion in response to the goodness of ordinary people, right, just around us. Uh, tells us very, something very significant about, um, about morality. 
and so that's, you know, that's the finding. And then the challenge to your question, Sasha, is how do we open our eyes to that? How do we get away from Twitter and Instagram and all its envy producing images and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and remind ourselves of, of kindness, courage and overcoming? You also write that dance and collective movement, like participating in sports, but also even watching sports, collective effervescence, a term you borrow from Durkheim, can engender awe in us. How does collective movement do this? It's so striking, you know, um, when we gather these stories of awe, uh, one of the eight wonders is what, like you nicely summarized, Sasha, I, borrowing from Emile Durkheim, the great sociologist, called collective effervescence. And these were stories of like, you know, I was dancing with other people at a wedding and suddenly I just felt awestruck or I was in my yoga class and we all did the posture and man, you know, I just felt a love for the people around me and tingly and kundalini or, you know, I was at this march and our fists all went up at the same time and I just felt transcendent. So what's going on? Um, and, and, you know, I think um, Durkheim got it right, and, and I, in the book, sort of talk about the neuroscience of this and the new contemporary social science that maps onto Durkheim, which is, in a lot of contexts, we have this tendency to synchronize our actions with other people, right? We start to move in unison. We dance together. We, we go with the same step. Our bodies have the same posture. Physiologically, there are, there's a lot of research now showing our brains sync up, our cortisol levels, the stress hormone heart rates when we watch sporting games sync up. Um, so we're moving in unison. And then as our, our bodies and minds start to align, we all sort of share an attention of what we're looking at. I am looking at that speaker on stage or the musician who's playing uh, the chora or whatever the instrument is, or I am, I am listening to the music together or, or thinking about this yoga posture. So our minds share attention. And then out of that process, we start to feel the, the awe, the dissolving of the self, the sense that we're part of something large, the tingles and the, the tears. Uh, and, and so collective movement becomes collective feeling like awe. Um, and, you know, one of the delights of, you know, encountering this idea of collective effervescence, not only is this remarkable science of synchrony, how readily we synchronize with others, but it points to sources of awe that I don't think I would have thought about. Like a lot of people find sporting events transcendent, you know, and they, the, they go to the Warriors championship last year for a lot of people in the Bay Area. They're like, that was one of the most meaningful moments in my life. And, and this, this idea of collective effervescence helps us understand why. It helps us understand why rituals are so important, you know, that we're all moving together. It helps us understand how political rallies can change our lives through, through awe. Do you think that might also be why the military, clearly not a force for good, put soldiers through marching formations? Oh, yeah. And, you know, incredible question. And, you know, I tend to get a little carried away on the upside of awe um, just to try to convince the public this is an emotion we need today, given the crises of loneliness and narcissism and the like. But there are dark sides to awe um, in almost every way. You know, uh, I talked about how awe can lead you to see the systems out there in the world. Well, it probably is involved in a lot of conspiracy theories of, wow, I can't believe. You went on. Yeah, like this, this makes, it's, it all begins in that pizza parlor, you know. <laughs> there it is. And, you know, and you're like, that's awe-inspiring for some people uh, and dangerous. Um, and then the same with movement, right? That, um, Collective movements, part of militaries. It's part, you know, when you study genocides, uh, and, and I was struck by uh, the film portrayal of the massacre in Rwanda and how much transcendent process was there of dance and chanting and, and alcohol and movements together. And that probably fueled violence, right? Uh, you think about the Nazi rallies and the like. So it's, there's all. And Trump, you know, <laughs> and his rallies, you know. So, yeah, there's always peril when humans, you know, take emotions and put them to questionable ends. Indeed. 
Moving to something hopefully a little more benign, at least for a moment. In recent years, there's been a fair amount of attention to the value of being in nature, nature being one of the places that you argue we experience awe. You know, especially since most of us spend more than 90% of our lives indoors. But it made me want to ask you, why should the benefits that we associate with nature be attributed to awe? Could it not just be that we're, we're finally outside in the sunlight, we're breathing more oxygen, and that that might transform how we feel? Yeah, what a nuanced question. You know, any time that we try to unpack a really complicated causal relationship, like, you know, Emerson said, you know, out in nature, there's nothing that nature cannot repair. And the data align with that, that, you know, coming out, you know, getting out into the woods, going to an arboretum, gardening, smelling flowers, sitting by a river, going to the ocean, all are really good for us physically. Um, And there are a lot of robust data of different kinds that speak to that. And that's a complicated relationship to unpack. Nature makes me feel better. Um, Ming Kuo, a former Berkeley student, has an excellent summary of how nature makes us feel better that I cite in the book. And she points to 21 pathways. (laughs) You know, that's how powerful nature is. It can calm our minds. It can shift our brain. It can alter hormone levels. It can Uh, it can make us feel really attentive to the right things, and we're able to focus attention. That's a prominent hypothesis. And one of the candidate pathways she talks about is awe, that certain experiences of nature make us feel awe. And then what I've recently argued with Maria Monroy is in a paper about how awe benefits physical and mental health is that experience of awe, we know, makes you less self-focused, makes you share more, makes you feel less lonely, helps your heart. So when nature does produce awe, which is easy to study, and we've done those studies, uh, it does bring about its benefits through the experience of awe. In our rafting study with veterans and under-resourced high school students, in the middle of the trip, we had them write about their emotional experiences, right? Uh, What is it like for them to be on the river? And, And they were so poetic and beautiful, these high schoolers and veterans. And And what we found is the more awe that they wrote about, the stronger the benefit of that immersive experience in nature. So uh, what I I love about the science of awe is it points to one of many ways in which things like nature, music, dance, you know, spiritual experience, psychedelic experience are good for us uh, through what we've learned. You just mentioned music. Music, of course, is well known for allowing us to access unanticipated feelings. Tell us about its importance for all. You know, a, a book that really is remarkable is The Invention of Nature by Andrea Wolf. Uh, and it's really a book about the period of romanticism of, you know, Goethe and Germany and uh, a little bit earlier Wordsworth and others, just this period of, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, of privileging the passions and emotion and sublime. And they really felt uh, in that cultural milieu that, that nature and music were our pathways to spirit and the divine and awe and, and uh, transcending ourself. And, you know, th- again, you're picking all the hard ones, Sasha, I have to tell you, but, you know, it is, it is hard to understand how music moves us. This is, they are patterns of sound that hit our eardrums, that produce brain patterns that trigger emotions like awe, and we've done work on that. And what we, have, what we know is a few things. Um, the first is music really shifts our neurophysiology. It just it shifts our heart rate, patterns of brain activation to make us more open. Music opens us up. Even fast music and edgy music will open our minds into a state more conducive to awe. Um, a second pathway to awe through music is, and it's fascinating, is a lot of music sounds like the human vocalizations of awe, where when we encounter awesome things, we're like, whoa, and that starts to sound like choral music and certain singing patterns and sacred sounds in different cultures, and there's a robust science on that. And so the thinking is, is that when we hear music that has this sound of awe in it, it just directly activates the emotion. We're like, wow, I, I feel awe, right? 
uh, and I feel the thoughts and sense of self that come with awe of being connected to large things. And then the, the obvious idea uh, that now is a central idea about music is it, it just folds us into collectives, that through rhythm and shared meaning and the, the sounds of music, we just start to be collective. You know, we feel like this is us, that a, a music speaks to us, and we feel awe in that. So it's just beginning to, that, that work, to reveal answers to your very hard question of what does music tell us about awe? Well, and similarly, well, maybe not exactly similarly, but sort of adjacent to music are the visual arts and visual design, which imbues us, you document, with a, a sense of awe. What is it about the visual art, kind of narrowly, but much broader than that? Yeah, you know, we're just starting, you know, this is a hard question and a very hard question of when do, do visual patterns in art architecture, you know, uh, artisanry work, ceramics and the like, when do they produce awe? Um, how, you know, how, how does that happen? How does, you know, it's, it's really remarkable that you can stand in front of a painting. Uh, you know, uh, one of my favorites is this Dutch painter, De Hoek, uh, who's kind of Vermeer's uh, less successful friend, you know, and, but I think a better painter, but you know, um, and, you know, he has these paintings of everyday life of just, you know, women, you know, getting the lice out of a child's hair or sweeping, a, you know, a street in um, Holland in the 17th century. Um, and, and, and they bring me awe. And so how? How does that work? Um, and one idea, and this has been, I, you know, well documented, is certain forms of art. You think of the Huishkara paintings, string paintings of Mexico and uh, certain psychedelic paintings, they just, it's almost like a hallucination. They get your brain to see the world as if it's on fire with awe, right? Um, you know, for like some artists, like for me, Kandinsky, some of his paintings, is, or people might feel Jackson Pollock, like, wow, that, when I look at this painting, I'm, this is what it feels like to be awe, because it produces the image in your mind. Um, a second idea that I love um, that comes out of Edmund Burke is awe-inspiring visual patterns hint to vast ideas like life and death or infinity or, you know, sort of expansive space. And so you might look at a painting and it's pointing you to indirectly, like, why don't you think about how horrifying humans can be or how, you know, time can be, can go in multiple directions, or that it's expansive. Um, and so that's a, a second pathway. And, um, you know, I, uh, again, hope, you know, there's, there's this new science of how art makes us feel things, um, how visual design makes us feel things that I think will be, you know, really useful for our worlds and make a case for how important museums are and how important it is to beautify hospitals how important it is to beautify cities, right, to, or to bring awe to them. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio, and I'm speaking with Dacher Keltner about awe, the new science of everyday wonder, and how it can transform your life. He's professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. You write, Dacher, about how we also find awe in epiphanies, in moments that shift how we see the world. And you mentioned earlier that that can include moments that allow us to move from sort of reductionist thinking about things around us as separate from each other to a more holistic, systematic way of seeing the world and the interdependency of things. Can you tell us more about that form of all? Um, this one really matters to me because, you know, some of the work we do at the Greater Good Science Center is oriented towards education and the development of knowledge. Uh, we're building awe curricula for schools right now. Uh, you know, as a parent, I, I feel like our younger people have moved a bit away from mystery and wondering and, and more toward reductionistic analyses of things. So I worry about that, you know, as do a lot of people in education. Um, 
And awe is this pathway to a different form of knowledge than reductionistic, analytical, break things into its separate parts, thinking. And, and instead, what it does is you know, it, it gets us to see the world in terms of systems, ecosystems and social systems and systems of production and systems of music and sounds and systems like families. Um, it really brings into our awareness um, the sense that there are all these processes that are interrelated and animated by some purpose. Uh, and so the studies show, you know, if I have a brief moment of awe, I see nature in terms of its systems, its ecosystems. If I have a brief moment of awe, I see uh, myself as part of a social system, as opposed to like, I'm just this rugged individual. Instead, you see, no, I'm part of this community. Uh, it can lead to danger, no doubt. Uh, Pier Carlo Valdesolo has found, if I feel brief moments of awe, I see patterns and systems that don't exist. Uh, he just presented participants random string, strings of random digits. And when feeling awe, you're like, oh, I see a pattern there. It's like a, you know, it's like a, a monsoon in India. And it's like, no, it was random. And you got to worry about like QAnon and so forth. So, but it's a powerful part of awe is to help us shift towards a systems view of the world. And I think, um, you know, if we reflect on that, how important that is in these times to Think about our economic system and how, you know, those tax structures tend to, you know, benefit some and not others. Or think about, you know, the systemic effects of our consumer activity on the environment. So I am really excited about sort of taking that idea and, and seeing where it can lead in, in worlds of education. You write that we often experience awe with moments of life and death, of birth and dying. And you mentioned your own experience with your brother. How can all particularly help the dying and their loved ones? You know, I was with Reverend Malcolm Clemens Young over at um, Grace Cathedral a month ago. He's a figure in the book about spirituality. You know, and he's with a lot of people who die, just like Roshi Joan Halifax, who I interviewed for this book. And, and both of them said, you know, as we, and she did remarkable hospice work um, throughout her career from a kind of a Buddhist perspective, and both said, you know, when we approach dying, um, it, we encounter this deepest of mysteries of what happens after, what is life, you know, and it's horrifying, and it's terrifying, and it's also awe-inspiring. When my brother um, approached the end of his life from colon cancer, I was just brutalized and horrified and, you know, depressed, and he got really curious. You know, he was... He was you know, because it was his life. And he was like, what is this? What is life? And what does it all mean? And awe comes with the approach of the end of life because of its vastness and mystery. And what I am thrilled about uh, in talking about this emotion in this book is people who are working in hospice and grief and palliative care with children who are dying and with uh, people who are grieving and with uh, people thinking about how do we approach the end of life are returning to awe, right? How do we get people to think about the mysteries of this experience of approaching the end of your life, the, the vastness of life? How do you think about the vastness of your own life? Um, and that will be uh, a productive extension of the, the power of this emotion. You know, the, um, of course, when you study the, the re death rituals from other cultures, they do that really richly. They have generations of people around you. They tell stories. They tell origin stories of where life begins and where it goes after. Um, and I, in my own experience as a very secular 21st century American, I, I miss that uh, and had to rediscover how awe helps us as we think about dying. Let me end by looping back to the question of the political uses of awe. You know, you mentioned earlier in the hour how there's a very dark side of awe, and we can think about, you know, many examples, the mass spectacles of fascism, the Nuremberg rally, and so on, where a kind of sense of awesome vastness was used for reactionary political ends. 
Do you think that awe could be used politically for progressive social change, or do you think it's just too ripe for manipulation? Yeah, you know, I think awe in some sense is politically neutral <laughs> in that it is an emotion that arises in response to vast mysteries that animates collective movements. I was talking with Rebecca Solnit, uh, a progressive I deeply admire, and she was talking about how social movements uh, of a progressive quality very often, and maybe even more typically, begin with spontaneous awe, right? And you think about uh, uh, Greta Thunberg and you know the, the movement that she's inspired because of her moral beauty. And you think about Martin Luther King's awe-inspiring speech of courage that led to and was part of that movement. And you think about some of the collective feelings that gave rise to, you know, the, the very interesting groups that met that led to certain feminist movements. And we could go on. And I think in some sense, that's Howard Zinn's thesis of, you know, his great alternative history of the United States is a lot of social change begins on the ground with moments of awe. The free speech movement at UC Berkeley, which is one of my favorite movements, obviously, began with just a collective group of students, Mario Savio and others, protesting, inspiring, getting people to go to Sproul Plaza, and then it led to a lot of important social change. There is this new thinking that the passions can give rise to political change, fear being an obvious thing to study, anger and rage, and awe, right? And I think it has remarkable progressive potential you know, those rallies that you and I, that you were at, and I was there too, uh, against the shock and awe campaign or the bombing of Iraq, or, it felt awe-inspiring. And, and probably, if we had the right data, we could say awe was part of the reason that protest took place. Dr. Keltner, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Sasha. Amazing questions. I really appreciate it. Dr. Keltner is professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. We've been discussing his book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. And that's published by Penguin at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. His other books include The Power Paradox and Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life. Dr. Keltner directs UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Mm -hmm.